listening to Not Good Enough, an inadequate response to inadequate responses. I'm Mitch Alexander. I'm Tom McLean. And I'm Evie. And we've got Isaac in our headphones, fact-checking and in our notes, cutting paragraph after paragraph after paragraph because we're doing a special ep. Woohoo! <laughs> We're not doing a regular app. It's so special, Isaac's not even in our headphones. I just need that for the joke. It's a conceit. Got an hour interview lined up and we're just like, oh, I don't think we're going to fit any of this in, honestly. <laughs> it's lucky too, though, because there's not much else happening in Australian politics oh, or news at the slow moment. Slow so. news week. <laughs> yeah, we just decided to throw everything out the window and um, just work on our pet issues instead, or rather my pet issues. Um, <laughs> because this is an Evie special episode. I'm going to make it all about me. Um <laughs> Uh, No, I had a really great time um, having a chat to Justin Warren, who was a board member at Electronic Frontiers Australia. And we had a chat about all the internet legislation or privacy legislation that has come through uh, this week. And I figured, you know what, 20 minutes is not really that much of a time to talk about it. So I'll just get Justin on the phone and we can have a chat about it for 25 minutes. It went for so much longer than that, but we had a really lovely discussion (laughs) about it where we got into the weeds a bit. Um, He explained a lot of very technical concepts to someone like me who is not very smart. He doesn't know shit about fuck. (laughs) I don't know shit about fuck. Um, And he explained it just in just a very wonderful way. And we also had like a chat about what it means to communicate about digital rights to people who don't know shit about fuck. So I really hope you enjoy that conversation. Yes, like you, Mitch, who doesn't know shit about fuck. (laughs) (laughs) It's genuinely like, like, you know, joking about (laughs) there's not much happening in the news. There's heaps. But like this is also one of the things that, could very easily get lost if it's not for big nerds like you, Evie. Yes. <laughs> Love this idea that the like uh, corruption inquiry into Gladys Berejiklian, they're just deploying that as a smokescreen so that we don't pay attention to the privacy legislation. <laughs> In all seriousness, though, um, when we talk about um, bills that are rushed out before Christmas, um, they're often very complicated ones uh, to explain in like just a one page or even. Um, yeah. So, and, and it's something we can't just sort of normally cover with our usual sort of banter about it. So it's a slight different, slightly different tone to our usual pace. Um, Justin is just a fabulous um, person to talk to though. So oh, I hope he? you do enjoy it nonetheless. Yeah, he's great. Fabulous person to listen to. Holy shit. Yes. Just the just <laughs> a voice like tone. honey. <laughs> Good voice, my dude. And brace yourself, listeners. You'll get to hear 3CR Evie as well. She's got her own interview <laughs> voice. <laughs> I don't think you deployed shit about fuck once during that interview. <laughs> No, I was very serious, which is unusual for me as the jock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you didn't bully him either. It was weird. (laughs) But also, fucking kudos for the edit as well. Uh, Dear listener, this was Evie's, like, first major edit of a thing, and holy shit, it sounds good. You fucking smashed it. Yeah, you're going to be thinking, like, it just sounds like a recorded conversation. That's because it's a good edit. Oh, <laughs> yeah. thank you. Yeah, this was my first shot at a long-form interview, so, yeah. <laughs> no, legit. It sounds fucking amazing. Let's hit it. Joining us now is Justin Warren, who is a board member at Electronic Frontiers Australia. Uh, Justin's with us today just to chat about the absolute avalanche of digital rights-associated legislation that popped up for submissions this week uh, and just for discussion as well. Welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you for having me. 
Let's have a recap of what dropped on Monday. Uh, I, I thought it'd probably be a good thing just to run down the list because there was quite a few things. It actually reminded me quite a bit of the legislation that dropped towards the end of last year too. Um, but this year it seems to be exclusively related to privacy as well as restricted access um, based on age. So the first one that dropped was the online privacy bill exposure draft, then the Privacy Act review discussion paper, the draft restricted access systems declaration, and last of all, the social media basics expectations and defamation bill. Uh, Now, that's a lot of words for a lot of things. Um, So first of all, uh, what's your general understanding of why these have dropped now all of a sudden. Um, I know that a lot of these bills and discussion papers have been talked about for quite a few years or have been foreshadowed. Um, Is there a specific explanation as to why these would all be, you know, being released now? Uh, Well, we're getting towards the very last um, couple of weeks, sitting weeks of Parliament uh, before it rises for the summer break, and we are due for a federal election very soon. So (laughs) this looks a lot like trying to push through a whole bunch of stuff before we might have, uh, you know, half-time change sides and they don't get another go. Yeah, that's right. Um, A a lot of them have um, very narrow submission windows too. Uh, The Draft Restricted Access Systems Declaration bill um, has submissions due on the 23rd of November, which is less than a month away. Um, this is, this, is this like a narrow um, window for these kind of submissions? Uh, yes, it is, but it's also not unusual. So we get a flurry of these at the end of every year. Um, well, we have for for at least the last several years. Um, I think sort of Christmas comes as a surprise to politicians every year. So they... <laughs> They uh, try to push a whole bunch of stuff out the door before they run away. Um, And, look, a cynical person might point out that rushing through things very quickly because politicians want to go home for Christmas uh, is a fast way for you to get stuff done that you might not otherwise be able to get through when people might be a little more willing to put in time to give it scrutiny, for example. Yeah, it it does have the uh, sort of vibe of uh, rushing through a whole bunch of assignments through without really reading the material or thinking it through much. And especially for, you know, bills that have quite a few sort of complicated consequences and aspects and part of them. Uh, Again, as you say, a cynic might say that they're phrased in a way that the average politician wouldn't necessarily understand and would just say, well, if someone else says it's good for kids or it's good for privacy, then I guess the vibe is right. Well, unfortunately, yes, that's a lot of people. um, In fact, most people don't have time to read this kind of legislation in depth um, and they don't. So most people make decisions based on the very little amount of information that they receive as they go about their otherwise busy lives doing stuff that's, you know, somewhat more important than reading legislation. It's difficult to do when you have to go to work and feed your kids and, you know, generally have a life, unlike sad sacks like me who actually sit down and read it. Um, But someone has to, uh, and particularly the politicians who, at least in theory, that's their job. Um, Sadly, many of them don't bother reading it either. Um, Yeah. yeah. Uh, And I think, like, the average person, and this is something that's always interested me about, just 
communication about technical concepts in general. Um, I work in IT um, and I'm always thinking about how to convey quite complicated concepts in a way that the average person could understand. Um, And you yourself, you work in digital rights and I've spoken to a lot of people who work in digital rights like uh, Lizzie O'Shea and Sam Floriani at Digital Rights Watch. Uh, Is that something like, what what does it mean to you to be able to communicate these kind of the, the concerns that you have and the concerns that you feel that all Australians should have about their privacy and what their rights are online. Um, yeah, look, it is challenging, um, mostly because rights is a bit abstract. It, it's different from your money or your health. Um, and it's the kind of stuff that underpins everything else and you only notice it when it's gone. Um, that that's quite a, a challenging thing. Um, people do care about these issues and when you ask them about it in the right way, um, then they tell you that they're concerned. There's a survey done, I think, every two years um, by the Australian Information Commissioner that goes and asks people a bunch of questions about, for example, privacy. And it has consistently for, I think, at least the last 10 years, I'd have to go and look exactly at it, but it's for a very long time, there has been a consistent desire from Australians from every walk of life that the government should do more to protect personal privacy. Uh, But they haven't. So people do understand this and they do want something to be done. It's just that the people who are allegedly in charge of doing that haven't done their job. Yeah, Uh, and it seems to be something that's increasingly on the table even in the average person's day-to-day internet use. Like there's constantly things in the news now about how Facebook keeps on intruding in various ways into their lives, Uh, you know, constant sort of worries about who has access to what in various platforms, who's eavesdropping on who. Um, And I think it's interesting to see that even without necessarily – having to communicate the risks, I think the average person is starting to come to understand what that means for the rest of their lives. Like I know a lot of the time when we talk about privacy, um, people who want to intrude on your rights say, well, you have nothing to hide if you're not doing anything wrong. And that's not necessarily a good argument against removing someone's privacy. And it's sometimes it can be difficult to convey that. Well, it's a terrible argument. Um, the same terrible argument's been run for a long, long time, which is part of the frustrations that we have is that we keep having the same discussion. It's like, no, no, we've, we've already done that. It's, it's dumb. Um, someone who has nothing to hide cannot be trusted with your secrets. Um, we, we don't wander around completely nude all the time. Um, you know, it's just not done. We don't tattoo our banking password on our forehead so that everyone can see it and that anyone could come and take all of your money at a moment's notice. Now, people understand that, no, no, we I, there are some things that I, I want to keep private, but we need to flip that around. It's like, you don't have a right to know everything about me all the time. Why is it that everyone just says, oh, you know, you should absolutely be telling me everything about yourself constantly? It's like, no. That's just, we don't live in a society of oversharers, which I I think would be actually wonderful, um, that we we didn't do that. And how dare you demand that I do? What sort of creepy weirdo are people who say, you have to tell me everything about yourself all the time? Exactly. Everyone's sort of entitled to having that, like, you know, private conversations, private 
you know, things that they do in private. Um, it like, I, I, and as you said, this conversation is just an ad nauseum point that's brought up. Uh, it came up during the discussion about encryption and metadata and what politicians do or don't understand about both of those things. Um, and uh, of course, the most irritating part of those all, those arguments is that it seems to be one rule for us and another rule for everyone else. Um, I, I keep on thinking about, you know, um, Malcolm Turnbull making arguments against encryption and metadata and then being found to have Wicker on his phone. Well, that's always the case. But uh, the trouble with these um, these people is that they know, well, either it's bullshit and that they don't, they don't know that it's a lie and they don't care or they're just being actively mendacious. So um, it, it's very difficult to, to deal with that kind of situation if you try to argue in good faith um, because they're not. Mm. Um, they also, it doesn't, as, as frustrating as it is, pointing out that someone's hypocritical doesn't matter because it doesn't actually change their minds. They know they're being hypocritical. They don't care. Um, it's about power. It's about who has power and who is able to use it on who. And it's always the people with power who want more power over others that tell you that you have nothing to fear um, if you tell me everything. It's something we've talked about um, on the show previously that there is a certain lack of shame in asking for these things and asking for more than what a fair and just democracy would entitle um, anyone else to have. Um, I don't think a politician necessarily is dumb or doesn't understand what they're talking about. They just know that they can ask for it and not necessarily face any consequences for intruding on your privacy. Um, yeah, so I mean, I'd say that many of them are um, intentionally uninformed about a lot of things. Some of it, it's just because they're busy and they have other jobs. You can't be an expert in everything, and we don't expect them to. Um, I do expect them to be able to seek and listen to good advice. Um, that's part of the job. Uh, and to that's actually the submission be... process, though, isn't it? The submission process is supposed to be where people who work in industries or who are experts can give that kind of advice. Well, that's that's part of it. Um, that's part of why you allegedly do consult is to be able to listen to other perspectives that you may not have heard. But they have advisors that they pay and um, they listen to a bunch of people. People are allowed to go and um, have meetings with them. They decide who they will meet with um, and when. So they're, they're not um, it's not like they they lack agency here. Um, they could make different choices if they wanted to. I, I put it to you that the reason, uh, I, I often say this, the purpose of a system is what it does. Um, if they're not seeking advice from other people or they're not demonstrating that they, they are interested in listening, I'd say that's because they don't want to. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, that, well, that makes total sense. Like, um, yeah, what we need to deal with that, and as you say, it's like they have no shame. Um, shame is not a very good motivator. It's it's a negotiation, really, and it's, it's much easier to negotiate from a position of strength, um, which is one reason uh, that collective action is, is really useful. When we band together as a group of people who have, have common interests, um, it's much, much easier to negotiate with, with another party. And pretty much everybody knows that. That's why the lobby groups form um, that's why unions exist. That's why the Pharmacy Guild of Australia exists. Um, all of these groups are like-minded people 
um, you know, the Minerals Council of Australia, um, the Business Council of Australia. These are all groups that have joined together based on a set of common interests, and they have people who represent those common interests to politicians. Um, in theory, that's how democracy works, is that we all vote for someone who will represent our common interests and try to make common decisions for, for the benefit of everybody. Yeah, and and if um, people in power know that that collective action um, of people of common interests works in their favour, then, you know, we as, you know, constituents should understand and recognise and use that power ourselves. Something I really um, enjoy that you and uh, Digital Rights Watch uh, did as well is putting together just an explainer as well of how to write submissions for these kind of um, bills and drafts and discussion papers. We're trying to do more of that. It's been a bit of an era of rebuilding some some parts of EFA. Sadly, um, it sort of ran into some stumbles, but we've um, we've largely come through that. Um, the focus now is to rather than us doing it on on other people's behalf, is like well, it's we we have been doing a lot of that, but we can't do everything ourselves, and there is power in a collective. So. Educating other people on how to do this for themselves is actually vastly more useful. Um, we would love the help. We'd love for you to come and join us and, and you know, help out and, and build some power for us. Um, but if, if all you do is just write one submission about an issue that you care about, then tremendous. Uh, that, and that's something that we're trying to do a lot more of is demystify some of this um, process, which can... Uh, it, it feels really strange to people who aren't used to it. And a lot of it, honestly, it is strange. It's it's Byzantine weirdness that's grown up over a long period of time based on archaic traditions from medieval England. So <laughs> it's it's not unreasonable to think, like, of course you don't understand it. I don't understand it half the time. It's, <laughs> it is weird. Um, and that's okay. I'd love a bill just to improve the submissions process, actually, just just to make it less Byzantine and actually accessible to modern Australians rather than, you know, a hurriedly written document that's like in a certain format that's submissible um, to the federal government. But, you know, this is the system we have. Well, it's, it's not that difficult. It actually isn't that hard. There are other things that are a lot easier. They have to be in particular formats and so on. This one can just be an email. Um, it can be relatively straightforward. Now, there are techniques about how you do it that makes it more likely that you'll be listened to, um, though, but these are skills that you can learn and they're skills that you can practice. And the best way to learn it is to practice it. Um, there's very low downside as well. Like you can give it a burl and, I mean, if you try it and it doesn't work, that's the same outcome as not doing anything. So... There is no downside to this other than, you know, a bit of a loss of time. But you'll learn some skills and, you know, you'll you'll potentially change something. It's good. You should do it. Oh, I, I definitely plan to um, be sending a lot of submissions for these particular ones. Um, just wondering as well, like, do you have, like, I, I, you probably as an organisation, you probably do get responses to some of the submissions you make. But do, have you heard of individual people receiving responses to the submissions they make? Uh, well, you tend not to get other than procedural things about, yes, we received it, thank you for that. Um, I mean, we as an organisation do get invited to participate in certain consultations and so on because we're a stakeholder group and um, and we're known to represent a group of people who are interested about this stuff. We have certain expertise. Uh, but you generally, you don't get um, feedback very much. You do notice, though, uh, sometimes you will get kind of a shout-out or, like, you'll get cited 
um, in a report from whatever the committee is that you are presenting your report to, um, you might get a particular phrase that you used or an idea that you were talking about might get cited with um, with, with some kind of favourable mention. That's that's kind of the best you get. You'll get an informal thing occasionally if you're lucky. Um, if you happen to be chatting to someone who worked in that particular area of government or something, you might hear back through the grapevine that, oh, yes, we, we read your thing, thought it was neat. Um, but no, you, sadly, you don't actually get a lot of feedback from the from the people doing the consultations, which is, which is actually reasonable. Um, that way they don't show favour to any one group. Um, the, the feedback you'll get is from other people like, myself or other other people who are in this field who write submissions we read what other people write so we'll tell you oh, i read what you did that was really cool i liked your idea there oh um, yeah we do we do help one another yeah now oh, that makes total sense because of course they're all publicly available so you get to see what other constituents have to say and um i guess that sort of uh, gears what you think about for your own sort of policy writing for future um, submissions as well. Um, I know that um, uh, I I was part of some of the submission writing for um, decriminalisation of sex work here in Victoria. Um, as I'm part of the Victorian Pride Lobby, and so um, you know, just the discussion of the kind of policy that other people are intending to write about, and the kind of um, you know the things that they would like to discuss. Uh, to be included in the bill and the considerations they have is very instrumental in the way that um, I make the decisions for what I want to write. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's like most things. If you, you see other people doing a good job, um, copy them, you know. Good artists copy, great artists steal. So if you see a good um, a good turn of phrase, um, you know, yoink, I'll, I'll borrow that and, and use that another time. I mean, the best practice is definitely to, to put a citation in there about where you got it from. Um, but again, those are skills that you learn about what the mores are and how you, how you do that to give credit where it's due. Uh, but that, I mean, that's what we want. We we writing we're writing these ideas down so that we want other people to pick them up and go. Yes, I agree with that. I think that's excellent. We we definitely want to do that more. Um, I'm not super worried about the credit side of things. I'd, I'd actually more rather people would take it and do something with it. Um, but mind you, I I do come from a, a place of privilege where I'm allowed to actually do that. So um, people are much more. Uh, you know, I'm a rich white man, so people are likely to cite me, and it it won't change my life that much. Whereas other underrepresented groups don't get cited, and they absolutely should. So you know, credit other people's ideas. Well, we may as well get to. Um the the guts of the matter here, uh, which is the bills that were um, launched this week. So the first being the online privacy bill exposure draft. Uh, so the long name of this is the Privacy Legislation Amendment in brackets, Enhancing Online Privacy and Other Measures Bill 2021. Uh, it's colloquially known as the Online Privacy Bill. Um, and the general sense I get is that this is largely to increase penalties for breaches of privacy by social media firms and also requiring a range of tech firms to verify the age of their users and also obtain parental consent for users aged under 16. Now, that seems straightforward when you look at it that way, but there's a lot of other elements to the privacy protections and the age verification from what I understand. Yeah, so I'd, I'd, there's essentially two big parts, and I'd, I'd like to deal with them separately. So one, um, so we'll we'll talk about the age verification part second, if that's okay, yeah. because that's 
a little bit more complicated. Um, the first part is mostly tweaks to existing law, and it's actually copied off the existing credit reporting code, I think, that exists under the, the Privacy Bill as well. So there's a lot of language which is very similar about how the process works. Um, it's, it's essentially a bureaucratic paper maze. So very little will actually change if any of that law gets passed, because mostly it's about theoretical penalties if after you've managed to jump over the nine hurdles that possibly theoretically exist, if the conduct is sufficiently egregious for long enough, maybe someone might wag a finger at Facebook eventually. <laughs> so it sounds nice, but it doesn't actually do anything. Um, it doesn't provide any protections uh, to privacy for you that will have any effect right now. Um, it's it's a bit of sabre-rattling for something that might happen some way down in the future, and we've seen how well that's worked every other time that someone has done that with Facebook or Google. So um, it, all of that part can kind of be safely ignored because they will get that all of that will get buried under massive piles of paper that Facebook's lawyers, um, in fact, squadrons of lawyers, that it will it will just set to task on that and just snow it down under all kinds of silly paperwork stuff. Um, so that will have essentially no effect. Yeah, it, it's um, the, it's the appearance of being seen to do something. It, it is, in the most ham-fisted and bureaucratic way possible. So it's it's just not very useful. The, the thing that is probably the most frustrating, I suppose, is that when this kind of stuff happens, um, it looks like something's been done. So then everyone turns around and goes, oh, the problem solved, so I don't need to do anything else. So we get this nonsense instead of something actually good. Um, there, people like to say that the perfect is the enemy of the good. I like to say that the mediocre is the enemy of, of the actually good. Um, <laughs> this, mo this bill here mostly has delusions of mediocrity. So we need something much, much better than that. Now, the age verification part on, on the flip side, um, that is frightening and terrible. Yeah, it, it, it's um, it's also sort of it dovetails with um, what's also called the draft restricted access system declaration, which we'll also get to in a minute. Um, but this is, I think, was the bit of the um, sort of warning sirens I heard um, in the distance, just in terms of what government policy seems to be heading towards in terms of age verification and ID verification online. Yeah, so um, the one saving grace is that it's so um, impractical and unlikely to, to be possible to succeed that, that will it will probably just collapse um, under its own weight and, and never actually function. Um, that's what happened in the UK. They tried the same idea um, a few years ago. Um, they were red hot on the idea of age verification um, before you could go and look at porn. Uh, they tried really hard to make it work and discovered that, ha, huh, turns out, no, which is what a whole bunch of people had been telling them for ages, <laughs> and they tried really hard to just nerd their way through it. Um, it turns out, no, it's not that easy. Um, so they abandoned the scheme. Here in Australia, we don't like learning, apparently. <laughs> so we're going to do the same thing, only harder or something. And apparently... A bad, if we do a bad idea harder, then it will work. 
Um, the rhetoric we're hearing is that, oh, no, the technology is so much better now, so it's it's totally possible to do that. Um, it's going, look, the, the technology for hitting yourself in the face getting better <laughs> doesn't fundamentally change that what you're doing is a bad idea. Um, the problem with age verification, um, if we actually get a little bit more serious for a minute, um, the problem with age verification is that you have to you have to do a couple of things. One, you have to know who it is, whose age are you verifying. So there's some identity stuff involved there, and the second part is that you have to actually know what their age is somehow. Um, in a privacy bill, requiring a social media company like say Facebook to know precisely who you are and your age, and be sure that they are correct. That's the opposite of privacy. That's giving Facebook for free, like government mandate, the government mandating that you must give Facebook this information, um, exactly who you are and your correct age is incredibly valuable information to them. Um, they don't have that right now and they would love to get it. In these bills, is there any sort of mention of how if you were to give this kind of verification data, especially for like under the age of 16, um, is there any sort of mention about preventing then these companies from using that data for any other purpose? Well, not really. But before we even get to that part of like, how? Yeah. How do you even do that? So like if, and, and that's, that's part of the thing of like the, they just sort of wave the magic, oh, no, you nerds will just nerd really hard and figure it out. It's like, <laughs> no. It's like, so how do you, if you're 12, where is, how do you identify a 12-year-old if you're over the internet yeah, from America? That's what I was thinking. Like, I, I obviously didn't get any photo ID other than my passport um, until I got my driver's license, so when I was 18. And... I'm pretty sure that my mum would sure as hell not put my passport photo and ID into a website to identify who I was to every single website that I use that required that kind of information. I know. And it's like, what what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> so, you're, so this is a government saying we, we require every nine-year-old to get the equivalent of a passport or a driver's license worth of identification so that we can share that information with Facebook? Insane. What? Just an insane proposition. It's uh, just I, mental. At first I was thinking like maybe this is a sort of a backdoor way of getting that much reviled Australia card that every government, every conservative government has wanted to try and do? Oh, we already have one. Um, the fun part that, yeah, so the Australia card is that the history of that is excellent about figuring out what it is. Um, it was it was originally floated essentially as a, a variation on me, on uh, Medicare. Yeah. Um, but uh, we, we have essentially the equivalent of what everyone was really grumpy about um, with the Australia card, which was a unique identifying number that could be used to link you to other services. Um, there, is a, there is such a number. It's called the uh, Individual Health Identifier, uh, and it exists on your COVID vaccination certificate that you get from Medicare. And in fact, it's on the PDF that you um, when you print it out. Uh, if you were to email that PDF to your employer as proof of vaccination, for example, it is super illegal for them to accidentally share that with anybody. Um, so, like, there's 
just this complete misunderstanding of how privacy works from the, the innards of government. So the, the idea that they can be trusted with this kind of identity system and sharing information with Facebook is just it's just bizarre to me. Um, but but they do they do have ideas on this. So that one of the other bits of legislation which is still happening, the consultation closes today, as it turns out, um, is on a identif- uh, is on stage three of the trusted digital identity framework, which is government's attempt to have some way of providing a digital identity to everybody um, in order for you to log into government services. So it's not a terrible idea in if it's done carefully and well. Unfortunately, it's not being done very well. It's being done a little bit carefully. Um, but I think the idea is that, yeah, if we can just magically solve the digital identity thing, we'll just link this up and everything will be fine, even though it's being used for a completely different purpose. I just had a horrible vision of trying to log into like a porn website via MyGov or something like that. Just <laughs> Well, last year, Peter Dutton did float the idea of using facial recognition before you could do that. Yes. So, you know, oh, we, my God. I mean, we definitely, I mean, who, who, quite frankly, wants to send Peter Dutton a photo of your face bef- while you're, you know, sending nudes <laughs> to your partner? <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. That's the thing. Like, sometimes it just seems that there's such a barrage of these terrible ideas that... Uh, Like, you just mentioned that, and I was like, wasn't that three years ago? No, that was just last year. That was literally last year. Welcome to my life. Yeah, (laughs) it is is exhausting. because, And that's the thing, it's exhausting because they keep throwing up the same discredited ideas time and time again. Um, I mean, we had the idea of an internet filter was smacked down a couple of times under the previous Labor government, which was, God, what, eight years ago, ten years ago? It was ten years ago. It's so funny. I think maybe the first time I just really became so, like, passionate and interested about the subject is because, ironically, of that internet filter. Uh, Because, obviously, you know, a young person online who wants to do what they want. And I I know that it was very sort of a a hot topic of conversation in, like, I'm I'm old enough to remember message boards now. Mm. Um, It it was a hot topic of, like, you know, is the Australian government really going to try and legislate a firewall or this kind of, like, you know, way to prevent adults from using the internet in a way just purely on the basis of we're trying to protect children. Well, I have terrible news um, (laughs) because, yes, yes, they are. Um, And you alluded to it earlier, which was the restricted access system uh, mechanism. So, yes, the combination – so restricted access systems are part of um, what is now the online – well, the recent revision of the Online Safety Act, which added a whole bunch of stuff where they essentially ported across the classification code from the Broadcasting Services Act, which covers television and movies and all that sort of stuff, um, has now been ported across into the Online Safety Act because that's kind of where the online safety thing started. It was about children and regulating online was treated as regulating a kind of broadcast system like TV. So it's got these really weird ideas in it because the internet isn't television. It's it's private comms, but it's also semi-public. It's a bit weird. Um, so we've got this strange legislation that's convoluted and has these sort of unexpected effects if you think about it in the wrong way. And that's kind of what we've, have, we've had happen here. So because of the way the legislation has been written... The Online Safety Act um, and the Restricted Access Systems apply to email and text messages. So because of the age gate thing being, it's like you, 
what happened last time was that the government was going to say, well, we'll mandate the internet service providers need to put in something in place to, to stop this from happening. What they've decided to do instead is that they're going to outsource the, ch- the problem to these big companies because it's fashionable to hate Facebook and, and Google. And there are very good reasons to do so. Um, this is not one of them. So what they're trying to do is that because the, there is a whole bunch of terrible content on Facebook they're going to require that Facebook remove it all rather than saying that you have to take someone to court before it happens. They want, pre- they want Facebook to do this preemptively. And porn is bad, apparently. Obviously. Um, so <laughs> they, they are trying to essentially either create a children's internet where you need ID and to get in through some sort of bouncer mechanism because of you know, strained physical analogies that don't work online. Um, that you can, you know, only adults can go into this this adult internet to see things, or Facebook just needs to remove it all. Um, and we've seen what happens with with that kind of attitude from the Sester Foster's legislation that happened uh, overseas in America. And so there's a whole bunch of just preemptive removal of anything that is even vaguely sexual. Um, yeah, when you outsource these sort of responsibilities. Obviously, the company who gets that responsibility is going to decide, no, that's too hard. Why would I waste money doing that? I'd rather just not have this at all. Uh, and that's what we expect will exactly will happen. And we did point this out to the eSafety Commissioner when this, um, when all of this was being mooted that, look, this is going to be the effect. This classification code should just, all of that stuff should just be removed. The stuff about online cyberbullying and, and bullying of children and so on, that was all actually kind of reasonable. There was some stuff around process of how it works and how, what is the appeal mechanism and um, how, you know, br- brigading and, and this idea, you know, using these mechanisms in bad faith. Um, they hadn't really thought through that side of things very much. Abusers will often um, use the law in, in against their victims, um, so the system actually becomes a weapon. Those bits could have been worked through, um, but the e-safety and and all and the politicians and the communications minister all said, no, 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 it's, we're not going after porn. You're, you're fine. It's like that's not our priority. Uh, and now we find it absolutely is. So you know, those were. Well, lie might be a bit strong. Maybe they didn't actually know what they were doing. Um, sufficiently advanced incompetence is indi- is indistinguishable from malice. So <laughs> yes. I'm not so f- I'm not that worried about intent. I'm more worried about what actually occurs. The purpose of a system is what it does, and that's that's what we that's what we're now seeing. That in or if you have um, class two classified material, so that's essentially anything that would be rated R eighteen and above. Um, you have to put in place a restricted access system if you are these particular kinds of systems um, that will age verify someone before they're allowed to see it. I, I really liked um, the actual line about this, about the access mm. that you need to require. Uh, you can apply for access and the quote is in writing, electronic form or orally and make a declaration that you're over eighteen. That just yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> just wondering <the> <laughs> how you orally request something from Facebook. Um, I mean, also that just sounds gross. So you know, <laughs> ew. Uh, but okay, fine. How does that even work? Um, like how? So we have to send a request to I don't know to a subreddit because you want to look at whatever they have in that subreddit, which is adult material. How is that even going to work? 
And why would Reddit even try to do that? So, yeah, and this is this only applies to um, it applies to a system so far as it provides that service to someone in Australia. Um, it's not just things that are served from Australia, which is so Australia is trying to impose its laws on a service which is based in another country. Yeah, that's the thing. Like as you said, like even just using a subreddit as an example. Just the the idea, I was going to say the audacity, the audacity <laughs> just to say, okay, well, I've decided that every single Australian who wants to access this now needs a certificate to say they're legally allowed to look at it because they're over 18 or they have like an email that says that they can look at it. I know, it's, it's deeply weird. Um, like some of it, it seems to be conflating subscription services where you sign up and you have to sign in with a gate, you know, you username, password stuff. Um, it seems to be wanting to turn anything which is information that could be freely available into that kind of subscription service where it, and that the sign up process somehow means that you are over 18. Um, you're a little bit like trying to use credit cards as a verification. And we've certainly seen, um, like MasterCard is in discussions with the Digital Transformation Agency about some kind of assistance with identity verification. Something. I mean, oh. I mean, that's that's an horrendous idea as well. Like we need credit card companies to be helping with this sort of thing. Um, certainly with MasterCard's record overseas with dealing with um, with queer people. Yeah, there is like you know, I can't really go into it in too much detail today. But there is a current controversy in how Mastercard is operating as a payment system um, in the US. Uh, you mentioned before the Sesta Foster legislation mm. um, overseas, um, and apparently this doesn't seem to be enough. Um, but Mastercard is now flexing their monopoly as a as a payments processor to be able to decide. Um, to not allow um, pay- payments that are connected to adult services. Uh, usually they use like, you know, things like protecting children or child trafficking or human trafficking. Uh, and usually these are just like a thinly veiled sort of uh, moral aura over wanting to stop um, adult content online. Yeah, it's the usual. It's it's neo-Victorians who don't like boobs. They're just trying to prevent, <laughs> you know, they, they just – they. They honestly, they don't like sex. They find they they don't understand it, and and they, I don't. They kind of hate themselves or something. I don't know. I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know what the psychology of it is. It, but it does seem it's a very neo-Victorian puritanical approach to things, and they're trying to impose their own their own issues on the rest of society rather than just letting other people enjoy themselves. You know. What consenting adults do in the privacy of their own home is no concern of mine, and it shouldn't be of yours. Leave people alone. Let people like things. And let, let consenting adults do whatever they want online as well within the, within the boundaries of already existing legality as opposed to trying to control what they see and do online. It's just, yeah, it's, it's very, it, it's very, if I don't understand it, therefore it must be illegal. It's the ick factor, a lot of it. It's like, I, I find it icky and therefore it's morally wrong. Um, there's a lot of that goes on. I mean, people do it about other pop culture things as well. It's like, you know, it's 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 problematic if you like a poem that, you know, it's a it's poetry. You know, it's it's you're not morally bad if you like pineapple on pizza. I personally don't enjoy it, but you know, all the more for you. 
Who cares? Yeah, you're not going to have something You're not going to request a bill to stop pineapple on pizza as a result. Um, let people enjoy <laughs> just things. Let people enjoy it. <laughs> um, let's get to the last of these bills, which is kind of separate in terms of like it's not asking you to send a letter to the e-commissioner to see a titty, um, but it is quite interesting in that we I think there's been a quite a big cultural conversation about defamation laws and whether Australia's in particular are pretty good or pretty bad or very restrictive or not very restrictive. And this seems like a step in the wrong direction, especially um, I know you mentioned before that abusers do tend to misuse the law as it stands and weaponize it. And defamation law has often come into this abuse of existing legislation and precedent. Um, So this new bill that's being proposed, uh, it's a private member's bill at the moment, so no submissions as yet. Uh, It's called the Social Media Basic Expectations and Defamation Bill. Uh, Can you just give me a quick sense of what this bill is in terms of being a censorship bill? Um, Well, it's a private member's bill, which means it can probably be ignored because it's unlikely to go anywhere. Um, It does seem to be trying to create a minister for mean tweets, uh, which is (laughs) always a good use of everybody's time. Um, I'm in trouble now. Yeah, yeah. so, I mean, defamation law in Australia is is hugely uh, broken. Um, It is mostly used as a tool by existing powerful people to... um, monster others who don't have any because access to the law is um, very expensive. Um, it costs a lot of money to uh, to raise a defamation action in any particular case. Um, the way the law is written makes it uh, advantageous to you to do so because it's decided by a judge under specific law stuff. There's no jury if you put it in a particular jurisdiction, which I think is the federal court, um, which is why they're all done there. Uh, we've seen various actions lately, and I won't go into them, partly because of Australia's robust defamation laws. Um, <laughs> it is very difficult to make statements about individuals. Um, pr- fun fact, you cannot in Australia defame a company, um, which is useful. Um, there is a there's a different thing which I'll have to I think it's called injurious falsehood um, is the best that they can do and it's got very high bar for proof so it tends to never happen. Um, I've once written something which had a company get grumpy and and write a not very well worded lawyer's letter um, about that which is where I learned about injurious falsehood. So yeah, fun fact. Um, you can use that. <laughs> so I can't, um, I can't um, write about uh, BHP and have them sue me for hurt feelings. Uh, you, the, BHP is a company. You cannot hurt its feelings. Um, so <laughs> no, BHP cannot sue you for defamation. Um, however, if you were to say something mean about uh, any individual officer uh, or an individual at BHP, that would be a different story. I don't advise doing that. Um, also, I'm not a lawyer. Um, none of this is legal advice. Uh, <laughs> do seek professional legal advice from a fully qualified lawyer before you start trying any of this stuff on. Um, but yeah, generally, uh, defamation is about people, not not companies and so on. So I and and certain other things. Um, so I'm I'm quite liberal about groups of people and uh, and you know politicians and so on. I I say some often mean things about. Them. Um, I think that that is healthy and good. Yeah, I, I think uh, in in a in a civil society, you should be allowed to say things that people disagree with that can often be mean to certain individuals if they are doing something particularly wrong. Um, 
Yes, just because this hurt your feelings doesn't mean that I need to be sued for defamation. Um, (laughs) Sometimes people just... Sometimes people's feelings deserve to be hurt. Not always. Um, punch up is is yes. my rule. Um, if you're punching punch up, up then um, you are probably on the right side of, of of this sort of thing. And you don't need to give. You don't need to be a lawyer to give that advice. That's for sure. Um, speaking of not being a lawyer, uh, with this particular bill, it actually allows the e safety commissioner, who is not a lawyer, to decide if something is reasonably likely to be defamatory oh yeah and again this is outsourcing the enforcement of of things to a company uh to foreign organizations like facebook and so on um threatening them with adverse essentially threatening their business if they don't preemptively censor people because they said something that might have been mean um it doesn't actually have to be proven in court that it was mean or was defamatory um the thing just gets deleted and then it's again, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to sue Facebook in order for them to reinstate your particular or, or Twitter or something to, to say, no, you absolutely need to put my tweet back? I was like, well, that's that's not going to happen. It's just going to censor a whole lot of, lot of content, which is its goal. Its goal is censorship. Um, that is what these kinds of people often do. They they are very, very keen to sue other people and to threaten them with, with adverse consequences if they say something that hurts their feelings. But they are also really, really keen um, to say racist things um, or to, to monster other people that they feel don't deserve any empathy or sympathy. One of the... Um Parts of this bill that interested me um, was also that the commissioner may obtain end user identity information or contact details. Uh, so basically, it's saying uh, be prepared for any one of these um, platforms to snitch on you um, to the people who want to sue you for defamation, which is an interesting um, demand of these companies because one of the rare websites who protects their user identities. Uh, whenever this, whenever rich and powerful people want to do this, is ironically Twitter. Mm. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of um, legal cases in the US where um, demands have been made of Twitter to disclose who a certain person is, and they will go into bat for users. Um, obviously, this isn't the case for pretty much any other platform, but uh, a legal mandate for uh, platforms to disclose this is um, quite alarming. Uh, well, well, again, it's it's aimed at preemptive censorship. It's so that people are afraid um, that they won't, so that they don't say these things in the first place because of the threat. Um, and that's it's often called a chilling effect. Um, it is designed to do exactly that. It's so that the peons don't challenge their betters with um, things that they're you know that these people don't want to hear about. The Queen doesn't want people to be saying mean things about them where she can hear them. That's that's kind of what this is about. It, it does seem to be quite um, interesting timing, especially considering um, uh, a person online, Shane Bazzi, uh, is currently being um, sued by Peter Dutton for defamation for statements he's made online about uh, the minister. Um, uh, and I, I guess this kind of bill is almost an expectation for, you know, just the regular people like us to say, you know, you can't get away with that behaviour for long because we'll make it illegal soon enough. 
Uh, well, on that note, I'll, rather, I'll refrain from commenting on um, specific legal proceedings that are running at the moment. Um, I, I will look with interest to see how that goes in the end. Um, but it may interest people to uh, to know about the mechanisms of the adult cyberbullying uh, part of the legislation that passed in the Online Safety Act. Um, it will be interesting to see once that comes into effect, I think in January, if I, if I recall correctly, uh, it will be interesting to see how many uh, politicians and other famous people take advantage um, of, the, of those provisions um, and go after people who are being mean to them online. Ah, that's a good point. Um, is, like, does, is there specific parts of these cyberbullying legislations that, like, penalise the people who are mean to them online? Well, you did mention the um, investigative powers um, that exist, uh, that were proposed within that that particular legislation. So the Online Safety Act um, already contains a bunch of um, investigative powers. And if I bring it up in front of me, I can have a quick, quick look. Uh, if we're targeting an Australian adult is the bit, so the child, targeting an Australian child is part that was already there. Uh, Division 4 is now complaints about cyber abuse material targeted at an Australian adult. Um, so that will be, that will now exist, and then division uh, now division five is about the online content scheme, um, but there is a whole bunch of stuff in uh, later on in the act about it, how the investigation of complaints is done, and the e safety commissioner has quite broad investigative powers. Um, they can compel people to provide information. Um, not providing that information can result in prison sentences. I think 12 months is about the maximum. Uh, but it will be interesting to see how far that goes. And I don't expect it to be used broadly. I do expect that there will be a couple of examples made. Uh, part 14, it is, is the investigative powers right. section. Okay. Oh, interesting. That's some homework for me to double check that to see what, what actors end up using it in January next year. <laughs> um, that's, I guess that brings up um, a final thing, which is that it's interesting that in the history of every sort of moral panic that has ever happened to human society, introducing a carceral effect has never had any beneficial result if you think of sex work if you think of any sort of anything to do with like you know adult content if you think of drugs um it it doesn't serve to benefit the public and the problem or what they see to be the problem never really goes away yes but again i i subscribe to stafford beer's um cybernetics view of systems and so on in that the purpose of a system is what it does i put it to you that um the the benefit of those systems you're correct it's not broad to society it does however benefit a small group of powerful people to further consolidate their power and to be able to um, exercise that power over other groups of people mm. so it's quite effective at that yes it's it's not effective in any sort of uh, beneficial to wider society sense, but yes, you're right. It is like a consolidation of power. Yeah, it doesn't actually make the, it doesn't mean that there will be less sex work. Um, there might be a, a small impact on it. it. It will just be moved to other places because you know people still get horny. Um, it's it's one of those things. It's it's how humans reproduce. 
the idea that we will suddenly stop getting horny because it's now against the law is like, <laughs> have you met teenagers? <laughs> have you been one? Ever? <laughs> Every time. Like, it, I just sometimes I also think of like just something as small as like when Kevin Rudd introduced the Alcopops Pops tax. Did that stop teenagers drinking? No, they just went to harder alcohol instead. Like, it, it never goes away. People find a way to do it. And that's just, you know, human nature. Oh, and, and yet broadly, like, it's a societal cultural thing. And other things, education and, and health awareness and so on actually does work. So broadly speaking, alcohol consumption, even with young people, has actually dropped over time all by itself. Um, it's, it's happening anyway because the societal attitudes towards alcohol consumption are changing. Yeah. So ban- banning it doesn't actually have any effect. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I always like to say, it's like, so let me get this straight. So you're going to pit some technology, some, some magical techno beans... <laughs> And some writing on a piece of paper against the collective sex drive of every teenager in Australia. <laughs> Who do you think's going to win? <laughs> I know where I'm putting my money. <laughs> Look, if I could get around uh, Net Nanny when I was 12 years old, then I'm sure as hell think that every Zoomer is going to find a way around on whatever the, comes next. <laughs> well, I suppose one uh, charitable way of thinking about it is that maybe this is the government's covert way of training a whole bunch of teenagers to be good at cybersecurity because we're going to need a lot more of them. Oh, look, they've got more kids in STEM all of a sudden. <laughs> Justin, it was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much uh, for having a chat. Um, you can find Justin on Twitter at JP Warren. Um, you can also uh, check out the Electronic Frontiers Australia website and you can donate to them as well. Um, and there's also a lot of material, as I mentioned earlier, about how to write a submission. Uh, really recommend a video that I will put in the show notes uh, as well. Uh, thank you so much, Justin. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Not Good Enough. You can get in touch with us on all the socials at NotGoodPod. You can shoot us emails at NotGoodPod at ProtonMail.com. But most importantly, you can share us with your friends. You can tell people. You can go, hey, I heard this really good podcast. You can go, oh, blah, 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 blah. That's a point I heard on on Not Good Enough. That was was the thing that uh, in in, in last episode's outro- we, we were talking about how, you know, like now that you've listened to the podcast, you can just share your opinions. Like now they're your opinions and they're open source opinions and, you know, take them and don't worry. And Justin was actually talking about that in the same interview. Yeah. Yep. This this episode, we've, we've accidentally developed a theme. Yeah. <laughs> our, our policy on this podcast is please plagiarize us. Yeah. If, you, if you're going to if you're gonna share the episode, that's lovely. But if you're going to share the ideas, that's, that's <laughs> the good stuff. Also, one last thing. If you have some things you want to know about or if you also don't know shit about fuck and you want to learn about things um, and you have some ideas of stuff that, you know, you want us to talk about in depth or you want yeah. us to talk to experts or something like that, we can do that. We can try to do that. <laughs> I can reach out to my large network of media connections and see what we can do. Um, but in all yeah. seriousness, if you have some ideas of things that you really want to talk about, like we've done some stuff before, like this episode, we talked about like, you know, personal experiences in previous episodes. This stuff interests us. So have a chat. Yeah. yeah. I, I will say. As an academic, I don't know shit about fuck, but I know how to look up who does. Yeah. I can research the shit out of a topic. So That's hit us right. Up. And I've got a big folder of memes. <laughs> <laughs> 
Not Good Enough was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders and sovereignty was never ceded.